This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by GCM Plus. The 2022 road season is well underway and GCM Plus is the place to watch the best live bike racing all year long. Catch all of your favourite monuments, classics and grand tours and much more live and ad-free on GCM Plus, as well as on-demand highlights, replays and unrivaled analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Adam Blythe. As well as the live action, GCM Plus has a growing library of over 100 exclusive documentaries exploring the full breadth of the cycling community. We particularly enjoyed Andrew Feather, Natural Born Climber. All of our UK listeners can get 25% off an annual GCM Plus subscription by heading to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25. Hello and welcome along to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me as ever is Mr. James Spender. Buongiorno. How you doing, James? Uh, on today's episode, we have a man called Anthony Walsh. He's many things. He's a business owner, coach, a podcaster, and kind of like a, just a life guru. Um, rather than trying to explain him in any more depth here... I think it's better off you just listen to the interview. But before we do that, we're going to get into the things we liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, good to see you again. Weren't here for the last episode. Missed you. How you been? Did you? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. I'm glad you missed me. I've been all right. Um, you know, we uh, to use your phrase, we go again. We always go again. Yeah. Britain gets flattened by storms. We go again. Fence panels get blown out between fence posts. We go again. I saw a um, very damaged trampoline. They did not heed the warnings from BBC Breakfast News to secure and tether the trampoline. That brings me on to the thing I'm not liking at the moment, James. Oh, yeah. The storms. Ah, the storms. The storms. Um, They've been and gone. Eunice, Franklin, um, Deborah. I don't know. They all had different names. But absolutely hate storms for many reasons. One, my poor parents, both sides of their fencing in their garden came down. So luckily, you're only responsible for one side of fencing. Otherwise, it would have been a very expensive storm for them. Uh, But they came down, which is a shame for them. Also, I feel like the weather took ages to sort of dissipate. And even when the storms had passed, we had real cold windy weather wet weather as well which isn't conducive to bike riding in fact the worst weather that you can turn to ride your bike in is wind i would say i'd say so yeah i'd take torrential rain every day of the week over a headwind um it's nothing short of horrific so i didn't do much bike riding because of those storms but when i did do it there was a few things that were making me enjoy my bike riding one of them was a set of sunglasses produced by 100% and in collaboration with MAP. And they made a new colorway, basically. There's nothing new about the sunglasses of their Hypercraft sunglasses. Hypercraft. Hypercraft um, were once used to transport people across the channel. Now sit on my nose to shield me from the sun. I just think they were very, they're very nice. They, they're gold navy pink and purple and they're very light which i like i'm one of those people that will take glasses on and off of my face when riding because i feel like they're getting in the way and they're annoying me 
and I want to concentrate and I can't do so with sunglasses. But these are very light, featherweight, lighter than a mouse, actually. Really? Lighter lighter than a uh, a songbird, a blue tit? Potentially. Lighter than a... As as light as three teaspoons. Three teaspoons. Wow. Mm. Okay. Which means that they're barely noticeable on my nose and I keep them on for longer, which is good because it means I don't get stuff in my eye because when I do take them off, I will get stuff like flies and grit. You can. That that does happen to the cyclist. Often flies and grit. I would suggest, though, it does depend on the quality of your teaspoons. If you've got that kind of like cheap stainless steel pressed teaspoon with the indentations around the top, which are more there for structural purposes than they are for making the thing look pretty, otherwise the thing would bend. Yeah, probably three teaspoons. If you you got quality, you got a quality teaspoon, mate. None of these teaspoons were made to mark the silver jubilee. Were they not? Put, put it that way, no. I'm just talking your standard teaspoon. They're not. They haven't got a picture of the queen on it. Basically disposable. Um, do you know what the lightest bird is in the world? Yes, yes, I do. I believe he does, ladies and gentlemen. I believe he does. Um, but I'm going to share that information with you too, because Joe's Joe does like to um, hide his information light under a bushel uh, it's the bee hummingbird and it is two and a quarter inches long which is actually kind of it's not that's not tiny but guess how much it weighs four grams i thought you knew less than two grams less than two grams not even two grams less than two grams that's very very light that is very light so i wonder how many of those would make a pair of map sunglasses but we do and digress. I, and I do wonder how they would do uh flying around during storm Eunice. Yes, I also would like to see them flying around, carrying the sunglasses in Storm Eunice, a little bit like Snow White, where the birds help her like lay the table and that. Yeah, and would they manage better than that Qatari Airbus that had to try and land three times at Heathrow on Big Jet TV? Big Jet, I've not seen Big Jet TV, but that sounds. I do love, I do love a sideways shimmering plane as it comes into yeah. land, and then someone shouting, "Go on, my son!" when it hits the target. <laughs> <laughs> But James, what about you? What's what's getting you going or not? What's getting me going or not? Uh, well, I've been I've been reconnecting with an old friend, um, and that old friend is my Chinelli laser, which oh, uh, how lovely. Yeah, isn't uh, it's not a a steel laser from the eighties because I could never afford one of those, and technically they're only a, something like two hundred made, but there's probably more in existence, a bit like uh, pieces of the cross. But the real ones are made by Andrea Pacenti. And um, yeah, still kind of stopped making them uh, halfway through the day too. So. But yours is a very lovely carbon replica, which is a beautiful bike. Carbon replica, beautiful bikes, round tubed. And I think um, round tube bikes just ride better because they sort of uh, tend to flex more predictably in all directions. So it is uh, ostensibly a relatively flexible bike, all told. But it means that it really just sucks up going downhill and twisty turns super well because it has this kind of like fore aft flex as wheels track the ground in the way that a less laterally stiff frame is want to do whereas a very stiff one will kind of tend to want to skip but you know it's not one for the sprinters out there it is one more for the posers but from one chinelli custodian to another i must say i'm always envious of the laser and and when i see you on it you you look nothing but fitting Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Well, it's just it's just a beautiful thing to ride. It's also got, um, I know that I occasionally poke fun at it, but it's got uh, Campy Super Record. Oh. And oh, it just shifts. I love the shifting on it. And, and you've got, got a lovely set of handlebars on there. And I've got the, uh, the Mike Giant Chinelli Ram 3 handlebars, which are basically about four times heavier than you ever need a handlebar to be, solely so they can be made out of one piece of carbon with 
with weird, like the graffiti over loads of graffiti yeah a load of paint on it and um this kind of like weird sort of gaping manta ray mouth uh, at the front which is some strange bar that you can i don't know mount your light on are you gonna put you gonna mount the light on it i don't know and you've got a really heavy saddle because it was tan yeah no i had to go for a tan saddle just because it's a, it's a Celitalia uh, SLR, but it's got, um, they don't really make a good SLR with a tan top because no one buys tan top saddles. <laughs> so it's just got chromo rails. So, so that's that's quite heavy. It's also got a metal seat post in it, which I find really incongruous. But Chinelli were like, we can't give you a carbon one in the colour of the frame because when we paint it, it won't fit in the frame. I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So basically, you're telling me that your actual metal seat posts are slightly narrower than they really should be, and the carbon ones are the correct correct diameter but anyway i digress the reason um i like it is just because it's a classic bike and more and more and more technology is fantastic electric shifting disc brakes blah 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 but you get on an old school um rim rim driven bike you know the bikes that have got like rim brakes and that oh Um, yeah yeah. just yeah just it just works um and I like it. Looks good. The advancement of technologies means that we'll soon all be working for a magazine that talks about those single wheel skateboards slash um, segways. Oh yeah, I do like those. They sort of they're very they're very futuristic. So that's been nice. And also, um, I had uh, had some had some friends to stay, and I got a handwritten card back with elephant on the front, which I like. It's a nice picture of elephant. But the joy of just receiving a handwritten card, and also the joy of receiving a card in thanks to something like that. As, as a thanks, not a, not a handwritten card to say, I've blocked your toilet, FYI. <laughs> it was yeah, a- FYI, yeah. Sorry, sorry, that was me that finished all the milk. Um, but yeah, that's just really nice. Like, I don't, you don't tend to, and I've, I've, I was writing something yesterday, I don't know why, because I've got a computer, but it turns out that writing things is really hard because we don't really type anymore. So our handwriting is just all over the show. So I think we should all be doing more. Yeah, we all have the handwriting of doctors now who yeah. historically have the worst handwriting of all the professions. Exactly. It's because doctors can't spell and they have to write a lot of Latin words. So to cover it up, they have terrible handwriting. Yeah. And they want to they put down what you need on your prescription in such a way that you don't understand it. But the pharmacist, the pharmacist will because the pharmacist it's code. is Some it's weird. code. It is code. Yeah. Is code. So yeah, that's been nice. Um, and uh, what's been getting me down? Well, yeah, like you. I mean, we always bang on about it, but it is the weather. I just had the the grimmest ride the other week that I can remember in such a long time. I played football in that weather that you were riding in. Yeah, and that was bad enough. I can imagine how sodden you must have been and how cold. Yeah, you must it, have got. It was just. It was a combination. I hate the wind most. And but and but in a very you know it's a tight race and a narrow runner up is the rain. But if you combine them, and there is not, I don't care who you are, there is not a pair of gloves on this planet that is actually waterproof. Worst you know best case scenario, the actual a pair of marigolds. Yeah, exactly. Best case scenario, your actual glove might be waterproof, but even with a marigold, you're going to get water going in down the cuffs unless you literally duct tape them. So you shave your shave your wrists and then duct tape them to the wrist. But then your hands overheat, get really sweaty, and it's likely you've got rain in you. Yeah, and then anyone. you can develop a yeast infection. So you don't want that. So basically, <laughs> there isn't a pair of uh, waterproof gloves on the planet. Gloves get wet, and then as soon as you put wind into the equation, you've got this like convection current that's just whipping heat off the surface of your hands. But because they're wet, 
it's that is a that's effectively um, a conductor for heat to travel through that water to the edge of outer limits of your glove and then get sucked away. So you basically what you're wearing a tiny little pair of fridges. That's basically the physics of how a fridge works. And you're getting colder and colder and colder. So it was just wasn't fun. But what I did have, bath. Oh, that's good. That's a good return for. Got home out of bath. And Hive, I love a Hive system. Hive, if you'd like to sponsor me, I think you should, because I was able to remotely turn on my hot water because I do have a very old um, tank-driven indirect heating system with an old old glowworm uh, heater that's just about to give up the ghost. Don't want to replace it. It's going to cost me about four grand. But I do have Hive. Boom, put that thing on. And it just about manages to rumble into action in time to give me enough water for a bath when I get back. So that was lovely. That's lovely. Any any bubble bath or salts? Always bubble bath. Radox. 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 Is there any other? Uh, I, I don't want to sound like the, the bourgeois elite, but I've got some rituals bubble bath. That is bourgeois too. I mean, next you're going to be telling me that you uh, use things like Maui um shampoo no i'm actually a, a garnier banana shampoo but we digress oh mate there's far too many parabens in garnier i'll get away from that all right then i'll let jade know not to buy it next time yeah you should do anyway let's get on to our guest anthony walsh as we said at the top of the show we're not going to try and define him we're just going to let you listen to it so here we go so you are you are anthony walsh but you're also the roadman cyclist um and within that you're also roadman cycling a brand and you're a coach and i can see a bike behind you it looks pretty fancy uh are you riding campy does anyone no no one rides campy no uh joe joe will contest that later on um so you're also a serious cyclist too so take us back eight years you've been doing your podcast for eight years what were you doing before then before you were roadman so i've had a a very non-linear path to where I am at the moment. And so I came through, I had an undergrad in economics. Then I was into postgraduate. I had a master's in law and I was into professional qualification in law. And I tried to make it as a pro soccer player. I got up to kind of pro level in Ireland, which is basically, you know, beyond non-league in the UK. It's the lowest of the low. So don't think I was a good soccer player. I owned a pair of boots. That's about the qualification you need to be a pro soccer player in Ireland. And I was rehabbing an injury from soccer and in, while in university and I started cycling and I've always loved cycling, even though nobody was into it where I was from. You know, we had the Stephen Roach, Sean Kelly era, but I missed that. I'm slightly too young for that era. So there was nobody into cycling and I, I, I don't know, I loved it. I loved it since I was a kid and the kind of, you know, the devilment of the escape and further than the confines of your street of always loved that idea that the bike brings you places that are too far to go on foot and maybe aren't inaccessible by car. So when I got on the bike to rehab that injury, I just reconnected with that childhood love for the bike. And I started progressing quite fast and I was winning races domestically. I went through the categories up to Cat 1. I started winning some Cat 1 races in Ireland. And at this point, I was finishing law school. And I'd had, we have a race here in Ireland. We call it uh, on post Ross. It's like a UCI 2.2. And I had quite a good performance in the on post Ross. And off the back of that, I got offered a contract in France uh, with a division national team in France. Uh, so it was a DN2 team in France. And so I was meant to start law school, but I was left with this choice of like, start law, start my career now, basically at seven years in university. So I'm like, okay, I'm pretty burnt out from, you know, head down, grabbing ankle studying. 
or do I, you know, go and do this as a gap year? You know, gap year is quite fashionable in law school because it's mainly derived from quite upper class people. But you know, my background is quite working class to middle class. So I, I could never afford to go on this gap year. So when I had a French team saying, oh, come to France, live in our house for free. Uh, you know, we're going to pay you very modestly, like 50 euro a week out there. But you know what? You don't need a lot of money. Your, your race entry is covered. You get a bike, you get kit. So I went out there and that was, I suppose, the start of a journey uh, that, you know, ultimately t- uh, the year after that, I went to Canada. The year after that, I signed for a continental team in the US called Estellas Oncology. I had a couple of crashes that year. And because I'd seven years in university, I hadn't started super early. And I never really had the talent or the aspirations to try and pursue world tour contracts. My idea was, oh my God, I love riding the bike all day. This is amazing. I get to see all these cool places and meet these cool people. And when I was out there, I'd set up uh, the the same coaching company I have now, but I called it then A1 Coaching. I've since rebranded to Roadman Cycling. Kind of got the freedom, you know, the entrepreneurial bug and the not working nine to five. It was everything that law wasn't, that lifestyle. So when I decided to pull the plug on not pursuing cycling as a career, I walked away from, uh, I had an option on another year with Estellas out there. But the US is so far, you can probably tell from the accent, I'm not American, I'm Irish. And the US is just, it's, so far from home for you know you're not popping back for friends birthdays friends weddings you know especially on a very poor salary you're not popping back so i definitely felt very isolated out there then and i was kind of left with the okay what do i do now moment so then you were like to remain in cycling i need to go down another avenue which was one you're coaching which you'd already established but also the this route of I don't know how to define you because I was looking at your website and and you're trying to make cyclists sort of achieve, you call it health, happiness and longevity, which are like your three, I think, pillars. Is that a good way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's actually funny how that came about. So I suppose it's a nice, it's a good question. Uh, it's a nice place to continue that story. Uh, when I came home, I was like, okay, I still love cycling, but I need to, I need to be realistic here. You know, I've spent seven years, you know, going through law school and graduating as a lawyer. There's a certain salary that I have in my head and a certain sort of lifestyle that I thought I could achieve. And I was like, you know, coaching 10 lads, paying a hundred euro a month, you know, Dublin's like London, it's expensive. You know, you you can't rent anything here for that. So I would be homeless (laughs) living, coaching as a living. So I, was like, how do I figure out this situation? So I had got that entrepreneurial bug and the freedom. So over the course of a few years, I went about, this over five years, so four years, so it sounds like a lot, but I went about, I bought a cafe in Dublin. I set up an event pre-registration company with a friend in Doha. I set up a social media marketing agency in Dublin, and then I built a cycling app called Pocket Coach, which was actually quite a big deal. We raised a big round in San Fran. Uh, launched 50,000 downloads on the first day. And I was balancing all these things with the coaching company and still trying to train kind of 10, 15 hours a week and trying to win Cat One bike races in Ireland. And I noticed something strange happened. I was starting to put on weight, like uh, creeping on a pound here, a pound there, uh, to the point that I didn't look like a Cat One bike racer anymore. I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. And then I've always uh, loved diary, and I don't know if there's something cool about the tactile pen touching paper that I just love. And I remember just looking back on diaries around then. I was like, you know what? I'm not as happy as I used to be. 
I'm balancing all this stuff. I'm making more cash than I ever made cycling, probably more than I would have made in law, but I'm just not happy. And I had a friend who's built some huge companies. I won't name drop them, but if I did, you'd know the companies he's built some huge, uh, real big public companies. And he mentors me. And he said to me, you know, have you got a little bit of cash saved? I was like, yeah, I've got a little bit. And he's like, burn it all down, shut everything down and restart. And he's like, see what makes you happy and start from there. So that's what I did. I shut it all down, sold the cafe, the event pre-registration company, the app, put the coaching company on life support. At that point, I had a city center office, like 10 staff, like the coaching company was getting quite big and shut it all down. And I went traveling and I went, you know, China, Bali, Dubai, all over America, Canada, US, all over Europe, gone to conferences, talking with scholars. And I was basically trying to answer one question. He'd explained this to me like the big domino. He's like, if you can answer this one question, having this one question will cause like a, a cascading effect and breed happiness and just good stuff into every other part of your life. So the question I settled on is the tagline for my podcast now, how do I use cycling as a tool for health, happiness, and longevity? And he was like, if you can answer that well enough, he's like, there's, there's such a huge demographic of people out there struggling with the same stuff where you go into a career and as you start building career and family happiness and happiness body composition seem to have an inverse correlation to career as one goes up the other goes down so he said if you can answer that and you can figure out how to serve people around that you won't have to worry about finances going back to law so i just niched into that question and i spent literally two years traveling the world looking for the answers to that question and when I came back, I rebranded A1 Coaching Roadman, and Roadman is the vehicle now through which I serve people and help them to recapture health, happiness, and longevity. And the vehicle we choose to do that is cycling, and that's what I chat about you know, five days a week on the Roadman podcast now. So what does cycling look to you like now? Because once upon a time, that bicycle was a, a professional piece of equipment to go and win races with. And now it's still part of your professional arsenal. But what does the pursuit of cycling mean to you now? And how do you contrast it with what it meant to you when you first, you know, got on a bike for, for you know, in anger, as it were? Yeah, it's, your relationship changes so much. It's such a simple, but it's such a beautiful machine, isn't it? Our relationship changes with it, like from a child when I was saying where, you know, it was that vehicle that helped me, you know, have a relationship with the girl that was two villages over that I couldn't walk to. And then into college, it's your mode of transportation. And it's what gave me that peace and clarity, honestly, probably to stay in university for seven years. If I was stuck in traffic on buses, I think I would have had a different college experience. I was arriving in there just refreshed and ready to take on the day. And then it became my tool to earn a living where I was trying to you know, forge out this career in cycling. Now it's really just an instrument of happiness for me. I just, it's, it's still how I exercise. It's still how I get my endorphins, but it's, part of a, a, I'd say, a wider health protocol now where on that journey for figuring out how do I use cycling as a tool, what I realized and I really dug deep into the research, I'm an absolute nerd, so I love all the, the research articles and stuff. I dug deep into strategies to reduce cortisol. So cortisol is kind of like, uh, I always equated to when I got like a moped when I was like 16 and I had a limiter on it that wouldn't let me go more than 50 kilometers an hour. Cortisol was explained to me like that. It's this limiter that prevents us balancing multiple things in our life. So if we try and balance the bike with work, with relationships, with social life, cortisol just gets too high and it gets out of control. But when we have these strategies around reducing cortisol, it's possible to balance multiple things in your life. So cycling now fits into this sort of, I would say, a framework almost uh, for me 
where you know you can't quite see in the background but we've taken down the studio where we've added a sauna and stuff into the studio as well <clears throat> so you know biohacks whether that's photobiomodulation standing on front of red lights walking barefoot for grounding for you know electrical charge cold therapy this is all part of like my daily framework now that really keeps me balanced and it's it's bizarre for me because it's you know it's quite hippy dippy and it's quite new age for me which doesn't come naturally for me so i had to fight against a lot of my normal instincts to to build this stuff into habits in my day and cycling very much fits into that and but cycling has become just such a sustainable part of my life since i started adding this other stuff in because i'm not as hurried i'm not as distractible it's and I think this is a big problem societally at the moment. It's just this distraction. Even when you're, there's a, a great Buddhist saying, it's like, uh, be where your feet are. And most of us aren't even, you know, I'm not sure if you guys still have parents, but, you know, when you find yourself and you're over with your parents, like, are you flicking on your phone? Are you are you present in the conversation? Because a lot of us aren't. And cortisol is, you know, the bad underlying seed that's causing this distraction in our society. If we had to sort of define you, I'd say you're more of a life coach than a cycling coach. So I have some of my best friends are competitive cyclists and have coaches, uh, but all they will, all they will, are focused on is how to improve on the bike. And there's no consideration for the fact that they're guys in their late twenties who are going to socialise, go out, like you said, have probably at this moment in life is probably when you're most stressed at work because it's when you're trying to climb up the ladder of sort of success more so than if you're in your sort of 50s and 60s and you're a bit more settled um but there's no consideration from their coaches to be like okay well we need to work around that we need to assess what you're doing whereas you it seems like from yourself Anthony your your focus is almost like the cycling's secondary it's more about what how are you in your life how are you feeling generally and then once that's sorted the cycling is almost going to take care of itself yeah, definitely. So I, I like to think about it uh, as an outcome. So if you go to the dentist, the outcome you're looking for from going to the dentist is to have clean, straight, white teeth. Now, going to the dentist alone doesn't get you to clean, straight, perfect teeth. It's There's a larger framework at work here. So the dentist will say to you, okay, so now what you need to do is stop drinking four coffees a day you need to floss daily. You need to brush your teeth. You need to have mouthwash. It's part of a framework. So there's five or six steps to it. So if I look at the outcome that my clients or myself is trying to get, the outcome we're trying to get is achieve health, happiness, and longevity through cycling and smash our cycling goals. You know, because some of my clients still have very lofty cycling goals, you know, winning cat one bike races, securing pro contracts, or maybe it's just sportifs. But regardless of the goal, it's individual and it's important to them. But so to get there, it's not just cycling. That's just like going to the dentist. There's a framework. So I like to try and use a five-point framework where it's cycling coaching on the bike, it's strength and conditioning, it's biohacks, it's motivation, and it's nutrition. And I find if you omit one of those five parts, it's very difficult to achieve that outcome at the end. You know, We've all heard those sounds like you can't out-train a bad diet. And it's totally true. You look at anecdotally how many cyclists that are riding the bike five to 10 hours a week and they're carrying love handles. It's like, hold on, like you're doing something wrong if you're exercising that amount and you still don't look like an athlete. And in my experience, it's been omitting one part of that framework. That's an interesting one, though, the weight thing. I mean, that has been 
it's it's bandied around now with things things like um, Zwift and the pressure, the gamification of cycling, um, and the very specific stress placed on the weight of each competitor and people contesting those weights and people having to actually have uh, submit videos at the sharp end of Zwift to prove that they are, you know, them standing on the scales being the weight that they are. And that body image thing with cycling. Now, obviously, if you're lighter, you're going to go for the same power, you're going to go faster and for longer. But do you, I mean, how, what's your relationship with weight like now? And do you, do you think that that is something that is, you know, borderline some slightly insidious in, in the amateur racer who doesn't really need to shift the love handles per se, um, but they feel they should because there is this image that a cyclist should be as lean as possible? Yeah, I think we we have a complex relationship around food, and uh, I, I think it starts with a lot of the morality we have around food, where we tag foods often as good foods or bad foods. And when you start tagging stuff as good and bad, as soon as you have a bad food, you know what does that do to your mindset of having that bad food? You know, if you've worked hard all week and you've complied with your diet ninety nine percent of the time, you know it's not a bad thing to go and have. Uh, you know, tapas and a couple of glasses of wine with your partner. You know, this is a good positive thing. And if we, an area I love to study is the blue zones. Have you guys heard of blue zones? No. Blue zones are super interesting. So they looked at big data of areas in the world where historically citizens live the longest. They have the largest number of centurions. So people that live beyond a hundred years of age. And they pulled the big data on this, and then they looked for commonalities around these areas. So Okinawa in Japan is one, Sardinia in Italy is another. So they looked at what are the common trends that link areas around the world that have this highest concentration of centurions. And social connection around mealtime is one of these areas, where if you think of the traditional, you know, the old Sopranos family dinner, you know, they're all sitting around with 10 layers of cousins sitting around, and they're shooting the shit, and it's a very slow paste you know meal and food is so central culturally to you know living long to happiness to health but when we have that morality around that this is a good food this is a bad food it's a, it's a dangerous place to be because you're making decisions you know thinking it's moving you forward when it's in fact it's moving you backwards and so when you're you're coaching your clients are you you're never sort of preaching because there will be coaches out there and there'll be people out there like don't eat this don't eat that don't eat that if is that more dangerous than just sort of preaching moderation and or or not even not even putting a spotlight on what's actually being ate as long as it's you know as as i said in moderation you know i I think it's horses for courses it's i'd like to if i'm working with an athlete uh you know we've a we have a number of coaches across the company now, but we've standardized how coaches coach. We all coach using that five-point framework. So we've members areas that largely deal with the strength and conditioning, the uh, motivation, biohacking, and the coach actually works with the coaching part. But I start at the end. So what's success look like for you? Like if if we had this podcast in 12 months time, what's the, what has to happen between now and that 12-month mark? for you to be like, Anthony, this was phenomenal. I can't believe the change I've had in my life. Let's start there. And I, I remember Michael Barry that was riding for Sky uh, coached me back when I was riding for Estellas. And I remember being in his house in Toronto one day and he's like, okay, you come back for a coffee next year. And what's the perfect year look like? 
and what has to happen then if the perfect year is you know you get a contract with a world tour team or you win the national hill climb championships obviously we're going to have an increased emphasis on uh, weight but if the perfect year is i'm super happy and i've added extra years onto my life because some of my key health markers have improved you know, we don't have the same obsessive focus because if you take something like a strict power to weight interpretation, you know, I could be 6% body fat, but carrying quite a bit of lean muscle mass, which is all very healthy, but, you know, going on Zwift's flawed criteria, you know, I'm not as fast. And this doesn't even translate into the real world because, you know, the variables that hold us back most of the time in the real world are CDA coefficient of frontal drag and power, not weight and power, you know, it, just because you can put out four watts a kilogram and you're 60 kilograms doesn't mean you're going to be able to ride with a dude who's 85 kilograms and can put out four watts per kilogram on the flat. It's going to be two totally different speeds. And Zwift, I don't think is a net positive for cycling. It's I definitely won't be getting Zwift on the Roman podcast as a sponsor. I, I feel like it's people are confused in what Zwift is. It's a tool to help performance of cycling outside. It's not an end in itself. When you obsessively chase metrics like, you know, weight, like indoor power, it's, they care about a couple of things and they care about user churn, how many users leave the platform. And I know these metrics from working on the app we had, they care about user churn, how many users are lose, leaving the platform each month. And because of that, there's a certain gamification to training sessions. You'll never log on to Swift and it says, yeah, go two hours easy. It, we don't need to be doing full gas intervals, cadence changes, level changes every five minutes. But it's almost like a Netflix effect with Swift. They need to keep you entertained with all these cadence changes so you renew your membership to the following month. Uh, and they also they just care about maximizing profits you know, as their, their second metric. And neither of these are particularly serving the customers. Yeah. So, so what um, – how – how do you see the bike industry and cycling as a sport um, at the moment? What was your, what would be your kind of temperature check? For example, you know, if you want to be, um, if I want to be really negative about it, I could say, you know, bicycles are way too expensive. Uh, we're shown the wrong people that don't match the body types that we naturally are. And we're told to take it way too seriously. There's too many people riding around with their gilets undone in black and white in the rain. But if I wanted to be positive, then, you know, I feel like, the technology at our hands has never been better. Our bikes have never been faster. Cycling's ultimately perhaps never been um, more fun. You know, so where where do you see it? Are we in what what's our trajectory, and are we in a good place at the moment, or not such a good place? Yeah, I think we're in a very healthy place. It's uh, I've really welcomed. I'm not sure how long you guys have been around the cycling industry, but around the Team Sky was that 2013 or so. Like we had this explosion of new. Uh, people coming into the sport and that's brilliant you know i love to see people at all levels coming into the sport because it, it's just positive and from a road safety point of view when we start getting this critical mass on the road all of a sudden now you know my next door neighbor for instance who would have been quite aggro to cyclists on the bike now he sees me going out in his kit every day now it's not a it's not a faceless uh lycra mannequin on the road it's like oh that could that's anthony you know i he has a girlfriend he wants to go home to. He has two dogs. You know, maybe I should give him a bit more space when I'm overtaken. So I think the critical mass end is brilliant for road safety from a public awareness point of view. The bikes are massively inflated price-wise. Uh, but also, if you contrast to other sports, it's, you know, maybe I'm contrasting to the wrong sports, but there's 
it's not crazy, you know, to buy the top end motorbike, to buy the top end car, it's crazy money, but you can own the very best bike in the world that the world tour riders are using. And it's going to cost you 10,000, 12,000 for the demographic that's coming into cycling. That's not a lot of cash for some of these guys. So it's, it's lovely that you can own this equipment, but at the moment, the prevalent message is you need this equipment, which is patently not true. We have clients who are winning cat one bike races, you know, in every continent in the world on bikes that are, you know, five, six years old, you know, the equipment is, is not the, the differentiator between these guys. Sure. It's nice to have. And, you know, I've uh, a Cervelo R5 in the background, which, you know, with a dual race on it, which I love. Uh, but I don't need that bike. I'm not, I'm not, not winning bike races because I don't have the latest groups on that. I'm not, not winning bike races because I haven't, I'm not ticking the boxes on the other five areas to, you know, around biohack and strength and conditioning. And I'm not prioritizing that in my life at the moment. Uh, I do see, you know, whether it's, uh, it's something I'm very conscious of in the podcast as well to try and onboard new people into this world, because we do have this insular set of beliefs and traditions when we're in cycling. And for us who are cyclists, they're nice and they're cozy and they're kind of warm traditions and they make us feel like you can come over and do my group ride at the weekend and you're going to fit in straight away because you know this set of rules. You know, socks got to match helmet. You got to look a certain way. Bike has to be a certain way. But it's very exclusionary from the outside looking in. And I think we have a big problem with uh, gender equality in the sport as well. Like we look at our group ride at the weekend and as much as I try and push female participation in the group ride, it's going to be 90% male dominated. So the confidence a girl needs to come up to a group of guys on a group ride, it's not a lot of girls have that level of confidence. And then when you add in the kit is skin tight, body insecurity issues around that, bike handling issues, all this crazy etiquette, I think all we do as a as an industry is we juggle the same set of participants around. You know, if you think you mentioned the bikes. So one year you're going to ride a Cervelo, the next year you're going to ride a Specialized. It's musical chairs. We're not increasing really the level of participants in the sport. Since Sky done it brilliantly for us, but since then, I don't feel like we've done it very much. Peloton, while the product I think is horseshit, you know, the parameter doesn't work. There's, what are you doing press-ups on the bike for? It's just bizarre. But for the first time, there's a company innovating about onboarding new people into our world. And we're getting so many clients now who start out on Peloton and then they're like, oh my God, there's this whole world I didn't know about. This whole subculture of guys meeting up at the weekend, you know, groups, YouTube channels, podcasts, they're onboarding customers and clients and listeners for us. We owe Peloton a good debt at the moment, lads. The, the issue on gender equality is quite interesting. You said about how, because if you actually boil it down, there are not many sports in which men and men and women will sort of do that sport together. So if you look at you talked about soccer earlier, football. I play Saturday league football. It's a men's league. There's only men. There's I'll go to Hackney Marshes in London, and there'll be. 80 games on and that means there'll be 800 men there's not a single <laughs> woman there and then you know rugby if you boil it down there's actually so few sports where you can comp- sort of you can ride next to a woman or you can you can there's that sort of well not parity but that where you can compete together and it does feel like there should be more and I don't know I don't know the answer but more more to be done to sort of promote that and to make that just a norm rather than 
Because again, if I look at it where I'm from, there's, for example, two clubs, one that's a boys version of the club and one that's a girls version of the club. And the girls and the boys go out on two separate club rides on a Saturday rather than being integrated as one club ride that's men and women, which is mad. It's, you know, you know I think gravel is helping this because it's shifted the focus from uh, competitive to participatory. You know, the goal is to get to the finish, to finish the event. And that's a lot more accessible for everyone. The idea of us meeting up in an industrial estate outside London for a criterium and knocking shit out of each other for an hour. Well, I still love that. You know, it's just, it's very elitist and it's the 1% of cyclists who really get a thrill out of banging shoulders with somebody at 50 kilometers an hour. But I think gravel has the potential to open up this whole new demographic for us. And I, I do, although it's sitting in kind of a funny space at the moment where it's a lot of world tour guys are coming across. And I think the next few years for it are quite important. I think it does have the ability to onboard those customers and take the Peloton people because I don't know, sportifs. I don't feel like the sportifs really made a top end of sportifs. When you look at the guys who are finishing, the guys and girls finishing the top 10, 15%, they seem to come into our little insular world or start asking questions about it. But there's a lot of, we've had a lot of sportifs here, which, you know, people will do them on mountain bikes and they, they don't ever interact then with our world after that. They're, it's just that's the end for them. They'll go and they'll ride a sportif on their mountain bike. They'll get knee pain. They'll get chafing because they're wearing the wrong shorts. And then they go, oh, cycling, it's a bit shit, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And you do, you get that. Like the, the one that makes me think of that is I've done Ride London, which is like the biggest closed road sportif in the UK. And I'd say there's probably a 50-50 split on the roads of people that you can tell are, you know, proper road cyclists. As in they're in, you know, their full Castelli kit, clip-on shoes, Aero helmet, and you can tell that they ride week in, week out. And then you've got the people there that are doing it as a sort of a self challenge. And there's not much of a, an acceptance for those people to be like, okay, well, it's cool that you're out on a bike, and we should just be kind of accepting and be welcoming to you. It's kind of like, you know, can you get out of the way? I've, you know, you're you're not riding properly. Don't sit on my wheel, etc. And even think about world tour races. And so if you're coming in to watch, you know, my background soccer as well, I uh, don't play as much anymore, but you know, it's pretty easy watching a soccer game to figure out what's going on. So if you're coming new as a soccer viewer and you turn on the world cup, it's like, Oh, sweet. The team with the most goals wins. It's pretty easy. Most of our sports have that, you know, binary outcome. One wins, one loses. You turn on the tour de France or, and try and figure out what's going on. So it's three weeks long. There's a race for three weeks, but then there's the race every day. But now we have this classification for the youngest guy. And now we've sprints points to the top of each hill, intermediate sprints. It's like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, this is insanity. There's, to, to explain to somebody what is going on in one of those races that has never seen it before, it takes so long. Like My girlfriend started watching cycling about, not by choice, just by me having her on the background nonstop. <laughs> so she eventually caved and said, oh, I better figure out what's going on here. How can you watch four hours of guys just rolling along? There's nothing happening. And then you have to start to explain it to her, you know, tactics, nuances, different competitions within it. That's very, very exclusionary. I've seen how much time it took sitting with her and her asking stupid questions and me answering them for her to figure out what was going on. Cycling is the, at the Tour de France level or professional level. It's 
it's difficult to understand and it's it's a part of our onboarding problem at the moment so i don't have the answer for how we solve that but events like gravel do just seem easier to explain the rules on something like that it's you know you're riding for six hours and you know bring some snacks with you so you're you know you're coaching all different types of people um from those competing at the sharp end in a race cat one potentially even i don't know elite riders and also people that will have found you through the podcast maybe people that have just come off a peloton bike a fixed um indoor bike and they you know want to ride on the road for the first time what are those obvious things obvious mistakes that are common between those riders that you see and that you can for want of a better word kind of detune and change to be able to get those early gains you know you're talking about what you want to have achieved in that year when you come back for the the coffee in the same cafe year on what are those like first incremental changes yeah i think for me i'm getting my kick much more out of working with that latter group now i used to love working with you know i I coach guys who you know started out with cat three brought them to cat one watch them getting pro contracts and then even some guys watching them getting into the break at the elite world road race champs and it's like such a kick out of watching an athlete who you know barely knew how to clip in and all of a sudden you're watching them on eurosport in the break in the elite worlds and you're like oh my god this is class i've i'm very you know not that i've taken all responsibility for it. it's a lot of hard work goes in the athlete but i definitely have a part in this story here this is cool but for me, what's been much more rewarding is working with that latter group that you're talking about. And I've uh, this, it happened completely by accident where I had this love for, I had a friend of mine who, you know, in Ireland, we'd call him a light social drinker and any other country you'd call him a raving alcoholic. He was drinking like <laughs> six, seven nights a week. And so he was saying to me like a, a few years ago, uh, like, can you, all the stuff you do with these young kids, can you do this with me? And I'm like, no way. Like you're playing soccer three times a week. You've never cycled. You drink six nights a week and all you do is eat takeaway. And he's like, come on, come on. So he committed to doing it for six months. And what happened in that six months, it wasn't like a 10 watt improvement on his FTP. It wasn't, you know, I lost three kilograms. It was like, I can't remember the stats offhand, but it was like, I've lost 40 kilograms and I've stuck on 250 watts onto my FTP. And now I can have sex with the girlfriend again or the wife that I haven't been able to have sex with her because I haven't had any libido. We have sex now like teenagers and I'm speaking up at presentations in work because I have my confidence back and I've got my swagger back in every area of my life. And I was like, oh my God, this is a lot more powerful than getting the kid to the world championships. It, this is, it's a tool for changing lives and it sounds corny, but it really is. And I believe it because I'm getting to see it every day with our clients and I'm getting to see it even with the listeners of the podcast now who are taking strategies and they're you know indoctrinating them into their lives and they're having some of these changes as well. And it's, it's powerful, but sorry, I'm going to circle and as I often do, but to answer your actual question, some of the, the commonalities I see most athletes coming in with at the moment, uh, most of the, the, you know, you'd call them the ambitious guys who are trying to, you know, play the category game and cat up, cat up, cat up. Most of them are training pretty well. And they understand what zonal training is. And they understand, you know, the various physio- physiological adaptations you get training in each zone. And the, the former group, the Peloton guys, they don't really understand training at different intensities. So I think they're the biggest mistake I see those guys doing is they're, they just ride at one intensity. But the commonality across the two groups is almost nobody is adhering to that kind of framework of having the you know training, strength and conditioning, biohacking, motivation, and nutrition. And 
if you don't have one part of that framework, and it, it seems intimidating when a guy comes in and you know he's the CEO of a big company or he's a Wall Street investment banker and he's like, I'm one of the busiest men in the world here. You know, a, a client of mine I was talking to uh, last week, and pre-pandemic, uh, doctors were super worried about his key health markers. Now he doesn't have a goal; he's just using cycling as a tool to be healthy and happy. But talking to him last week, and he said he went back to a checkup in the doctors. And the doctor's like, you have the best health markers of anyone outside the pro athletes I'm working with. And this lad's training six hours a week. And But how he's achieving this is the distribution of the six hours is very important. So if you're training four hours, if you're training six hours, or you're training 25 hours, I find you need to still spend time on each of those five elements, training, nutrition, strength and conditioning, biohacking, motivation. If you neglect one of those areas, you don't get the same results. So even with six hours, it's figuring out in that six hours, now how do I distribute my available training time so I'm ticking each of these boxes? And some of them are you know, really simple. Like food is really easy. Most of us intuitively know what we should be eating, but it's getting out ahead of it and it's boxing off time for advanced meal prep, for doing the online shop or getting to the grocery store. And if you're a very busy dude, you're carving out the time for that matters and taking a half an hour to do an online grocery shop so you can plan out your meals and you can pull some recipes from our cookbooks, you know, that's going to be much more beneficial than going on the bike for another half an hour. But it, it's that distributing the available training time over those five areas for me is the commonality that across all athletes that they're not doing well. That's actually super interesting that you said that how that doing your shop can be as important as riding because I think it's such a common thing where it's like, I've got a spare half an hour. I'm just going to ride, get jump on the turbo. I'm just going to jump on the bike. I'm going to ride as hard as I can. And that'll be a benefit. That'll be beneficial to me in some way, I guess. And then you get in and then you, you're like, oh, I'll take that off today because I did that half an hour. That's I've, I find that super, that's a, a really good point there. And, you know, some of it is uh, super passive, you know, because I coach investment banker CEOs, like, you know, some of the busiest men on earth. So for listeners, I think it's funny because the excuse we always make is I don't have time. Trust me, if these guys have time, you know, especially in a Manhattan hustle, hustle culture, if these guys have time to do this, you do have time. It's just, you're poorly organized and you don't, you know, you haven't taken the time to pause and plan out the pieces and go, how does this fit in? But some of the strategies, you know, we use are totally passive. Like I'll in the evening, even no matter how busy I am in the day, I'll sit in the sauna. Even if I'm super busy, I can be getting back to calls. I can be dropping WhatsApp voice notes while I'm in the sauna, but I'm still getting the benefit of those heat shock proteins. And some of the studies on longevity on sauna, even one crazy study I've seen is in two groups between you know control and sample, all causes of mortality dropped for people using sauna. and uh, All causes, including accidents, dropped for people it, in the sauna group. And the reason being heat shock proteins, they have such a powerful cognitive effect on us that the sauna exposure group was making better decisions. So getting into fewer accidents, some of this stuff is super, super powerful. And, you know, the same with photobiomodulation standard in front of, you know, a company like Juve using some of their photobiomodulation stuff. It's people might look at it and go, Oh, that's expensive, but it's not as expensive as the 10 grand bike, you know, buy the two grand bike and get some of this stuff. Like I've put a, a sauna in the podcast studio here. It's two grand. You know, it, it, I'm going to have it for 10 years. You know, it, it, it ends up paying you back and the data and the research is so strong on this stuff, but it's the way the information flows. And it typically trickles from, you know, Hollywood's celebrities, uber wealthy to elite athletes 
And it takes years before this sort of stuff comes down to the general population. And it, it was the way with awareness around diets, awareness around health, cigarettes, stuff like that. And it'll be the same on this. If you look at, you know, Premier League footballers, NBA players, they're all doing these strategies. But if you look in cyclists, you know, with the podcast, I'm lucky enough to chat to a lot of world tour riders most weeks. And you see, they're starting to ask these questions around this stuff now, but it's, it's really your, it's your Cristiano Ronaldo's, your LeBron James's, you know, when you, when you notice now, you guys will notice now, you know, we have that reticular activation system, which is our like filter for what we notice. And when someone mentions something to us, we start noticing it, you know, you get the blue jumper and you notice everyone in the same blue jumper as you, you'll start noticing on Instagram now, like the red light that LeBron is standing in front of and going, what the hell is that about? Or, you know, why is Cristiano doing his Instagram stories? sitting in a sauna you know you start noticing this stuff now and it's it that biohacking stuff to reduce cortisol it's it's so so powerful so that's yeah so that's an interesting one right so the, just to focus on the biohacking because i like that phrase because to me it says shortcut and i like a shortcut <laughs> so so we've got a sauna so i'm going to get myself a sauna after this that's going to be my biohack number one i'm also going to walk around um in bare feet in a field from time to time just to ground myself that's biohack number two what else out there are those easy not i mean they're not easy wins and i don't want to belittle it i do i'm you know i'm joking but what are those things that we just should be doing that maybe we have lost sight of as we've evolved or modern science has suddenly found out that there's these few little keys and all you've got to do is stick them in the right locks and you get those much bigger gains than you might realize yeah it's a good question i think it it comes back to lifestyle design and building a habit and a schedule for yourself in the day. Like you wake up today, what does the perfect day look like? You know, how much of it is you being a passenger of your day and reactive to situations versus it's pre-planned. And we do, you know, if your life is anything like mine, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can identify, there's a lot of hectic unknowns in our day. But we do have some certainties in our day that we can control that we've choose not to control. You know, the first hour in the morning, we can control that. That's hour, hour. We can control the last hour, two hours in the evening. So it's taking control of those periods where we can take control of them and starting to incorporate the biohacks into those periods. So I'm really big on routines and I'm really big on studying successful threads that link together top performers, be they musicians, athletes, you know, literary greats, whatever. And routines, the type of routine that they have is different, but the thread of having routines is common among all these. So it very much, it depends again on what is your ultimate outcome look like on this. But for athletes, some of the easy wins that I love, it's cold therapy first thing in the morning. And, you know, you don't need a fancy, you know, a hydro pool for this. You know, I'm lucky enough, I live right beside the RC. So, you know, if the tide's possible, I try and get into the RC. But for, you know, your listener, you can start off on something like this with just turning the knob to cold on the shower and having a two, three minute cold shower. And this is important for a number of reasons. Something happened, there's a, it's a brilliant uh, guy. He was a NASA material scientist. His name was Ray Cronice and he was studying weight loss. He was suffering, he was fighting, you know, the battle of the bulge, like a lot of listeners are fighting. And he was taught to believe that weight loss is calories in versus calories out. So he looked at it as a NASA scientist, a numbers guy, and he started running the maths on this, going calories in, calories out. This is not enough. You know, there's athletes out there like, you know, Michael Phelps, who are reportedly consuming seven, 8,000 calories a day. No matter how, you know, how uh, 
crazy and ambitious we think his training schedule was. There's no way he's burning through seven, 8,000 calories a day on any training schedule. It's like four hours of race pace stuff a day. You know, that's not happening. So he's, he concluded there must be a third variable here. And it was much like the rockets that he was studying all day long. He concluded that his third variable was thermodynamic load. So it's our body's ability to stay warm. So if you think about it, Phelps was in the water all day long with his body fighting to stay warm, burning excess calories. So since then, there's been a great body of research built around this cold thermogenesis. Can we use cold as a third variable in the calories in, calories out to lose weight? So when we get into cold water, I typically try and stay for three minutes. I call three minutes kind of my minimum effective dose. Now it's building up to three minutes because if you haven't had a cold shower, as soon as that cold water hits you, you know, it's not fun. So building up to that three minute period should be the goal, but some brilliant things happen there. One, we're getting that benefit like Ray Cronice talked about where we're starting to turn white fat, which is dangerous fat cells we have to brown fat, which is a much healthier type of fat to have. Two, it's speeding up our metabolism throughout the rest of the day. So we're on an increased calorie burn for the rest of the day. Four, it's really connecting us. And I think this one's really important. It's one we can go on and chat more about. It's We are so far removed from the... We've had hundreds of years of evolution developing our body to become this creature that it is. You know, we're designed for going days without food. We're designed to be the top of the food chain for outthinking predators, for, you know, figuring innovative ways, innovative ways to hunt. You know, we're not biologically designed for the new environment we're finding ourselves in to be sitting at home on zoom calls with artificial lighting even you know our our processes for waking up and going to sleep are governed by sunlight but now we have artificial light our body is struggling to figure out what's going on because tech has moved so much faster than evolution has moved so cold has this power to really reconnect us with you know our ancestral roots as well and i challenge anyone to get into a cold shower or get into the ocean and to think about anything but be present in that moment. It's absolutely impossible. Like I am never in there going, oh my God, my sky broad again. I'm just in there thinking, survive, survive. And people meditate for years to try and get to this place of total focus when they can just be totally present in the moment. Cold has this ability, much like riding a bike at threshold up the side of a mountain to totally focus our mind on the present. And finally, I think cold is so powerful because if you start your day with doing something you don't want to do, Tony Robbins is a great motivational speaker. And I went to see Tony Robbins and he was talking about cold therapy and I didn't even know it was something that he practiced. And again, this is back to the treads that link these top performers. You know, Tony Robbins with us unlimited resources. He said in every house he has around the world, something he insists on having is a cold plunge. He said for 40 years, every morning, he's never missed his cold plunge. And he said, for 40 years, he's woke up every morning and he thought, there's no fucking way I want to do a cold plunge today. I definitely don't want to do this. It's the last thing you want to do. You're in bed with your partner. It's warm. It's cuddly. You're going to get into ice cold water. It makes no sense. But when you get past that and when you go, you know what? I have this schizophrenic dialogue every single morning. I had a cold shower just before I chatted to you guys. And I still have this schizophrenic dialogue going on with one voice going, you don't need to do this today. You have a bit of a sniffles. You shouldn't do this. This is a bad idea. But then as soon as I hear that, like my little inner bitch voice starting to go, I'm like, you shut up because I'm in charge. When I tell you we're doing something, we're doing something. It's not a debate. This is not a two-way dialogue. I'm running this show. When I say we're getting into the cold water, we're getting into the cold water. And so many listeners will identify with that little inner bitch voice that's like, oh, will I go training today? Oh, it's a bit cold out. It's windy. Should I take a rest day? It's like, record those reasons next time you're procrastinating about it and play them back to yourself. And it's like, you are a whiny little bitch. 
Like these reasons make no sense. And when you do the cold first thing in the morning, you get past those reasons and you create this momentum that, you know, transfers into other parts of the day. It's like, I've already done something I don't want to do. Now the next thing, you know, sitting down to do the books in the office, sitting down, you know, it's not as hard. I've already created this positive momentum. Yeah. I mean, that's something um, that I've looked at through the lens of being a journalist and writing about this sort of stuff for our training sections in the mag. And it does seem the common thing with the cold, um, uh, cold exposure type therapy, it's been very um, useful for people uh, with problems with addiction, for example, and depression. And it's this idea that it's one of the few things you can do that you have complete control over because you put yourself under cold water or in cold water and then you take yourself out. So it's a very binary set of instances and you get to control when it happens. And within that, of course, like you say, you have that mastery over discomfort, which is, you know, we're told as, as cyclists for, or any people doing trying to compete in sort of endurance sorts of sports, that's absolutely key to be able to push yourself further, that mind over matter. But yeah, I do, I'm, I'm quite kind of enamoured with this idea that there's lots of things out of our control, but a cold shower isn't one of them. And getting out of a cold shower is certainly an amazing feeling. And I have, you know, I've tried to do this myself um, with varying success. I found out after probably about a year's worth of doing it that I just got really, really cold. So I switched to doing hot shower, cold shower, hot shower. Does that work? Is that okay? Am I allowed to do a hot shower after? It's a good start. Yeah, yeah, it's a good start. You know what? Maybe you don't get all the same benefits, but you're definitely getting some of the benefits as well. And this is the thing. It's great at adaptation. You know, it's not... Uh, you have to have the perfect situation for everything. If you can chip away and incorporate slightly better habits today than you did yesterday, like you're moving the needle in a good direction. And I think that's all we should look for. We definitely have been brainwashed and especially we, we touched on the state of the cycling industry at the moment. And we're led to believe that we need the perfect bike. We need the perfect tools. We need the perfect kit. We need the perfect shoes to get started. You don't. You just need to get started. You need to get moving with whatever tools you have at your disposal right now. You need to just get going. And the perfect environment will never exist with the perfect partner, the perfect work condition, the perfect you know gym memberships, disposable income. It's getting started right now with the tools you have is really so central. So what would be your first piece of advice? So unfortunately, I'm not this person, but let's say I'm a high-flying CEO of Saxo Bank. Um I'm incredibly stressed. I've got a family. Um, I also want to compete in Cat 1-2 race at the weekend. And I'm just coming to you, Anthony. I'm saying, I just don't have enough time in my day to do these things. I'd love to do my weekly shop online and plan my meals, but I don't have enough time. And you're you know, reflecting back that, yes, you do. But what, what can you tell me to kind of break my current cycle? You know what, for guys like that, and I, I can speak to those because I do coach uh, a number of those myself. They're the athletes I like working with most at the moment. And for me, I'm learning so much off them as well. So it's really a two-way street. But for the guys with the super high disposable income, a lot of it's just having systems around you, you know, getting to those levels in any business. It's leveraging the power of systems. And, you know, no one can run a 500-person company themselves. Like, you know, I'm sure you guys see it uh, running cyclists. It's, you can't be everywhere and do everything and have your hand in every pie. So you leverage systems. And you, a system is, you know, you try and get a system across the line with having the lowest level of skill. So it's the process rather than the person. 
that makes the outcome uh, possible. But it's very much the same with building up your week. You know, can we have personal shoppers? Can we have automated deliveries? Can we have pre-prepared meals in some cases? You know, it's something I've dabbled with even myself in the past when I know I'm coming into a, a super busy period. You know, it doesn't need food doesn't need to be a reactive emotional choice where you're open and delivery or just eat. And it can be, okay, start of the week. I know this is a busy week coming up. There's loads of pre-prepared meal options where we can even balance the macros according to our weekly training load. Food is the most overcomplicated yet simplest part of this because we all basically know what we should be eating. If you can't kill it, pull it out of the ground or pull it off a tree, it's probably not that good for you. You know, it's eating really simple. One ingredient foods, I say to my clients, you know, an example of a one ingredient food is a potato, a tomato, a multi-ingredient food. It's a, it's a good fella's pizza. You know, it's stuff you can leave in the press that bacteria is not even going to eat. You know, if the bacteria won't even eat it, you really want to be putting this into your body. But it's it's the pre-planning element and it's controlling what we can control. You know, it's it's back to the kind of Marcus Aurelius uh sort of real stoic stuff on it. Some stuff are we've those, you know, different levels of control. We've three levels of control and the level of control that we can exercise most, we can't exercise control of a lot of our surroundings and a lot of our encounters during the week, but the stuff we can control, we need to control that well. And a lot of time it's just pausing, having the headspace to go, okay, what are the pieces that are important here? And that's why I've identified those five areas that I keep coming back to because they are the important pieces. So even with the strength and conditioning, it's like, that's a difficult thing to do if you haven't built an environment for it. You know, you don't need a lot of equipment to do strength and conditioning, but you need to, you don't want to be starting your strength and conditioning as a busy person. Like you can get it done in your lunch break in your office, but it's having an environment where, okay, I have my yoga mat, I have my kettlebell, I have my you know two or three pieces of kit I need. Now I can get started and I'm protecting that environment so people know this is my workout spot. This is where he works out. Don't touch his shit because he's ready to go. You know, Much like you guys, I'm sure if you're doing a turbo session in the evening and you know it's going to be a busy day, kit's laid out beside the turbo and it's shoes are there, bottles are filled, you're ready to go. It's knowing what those important areas are and building those routines and strategies around those areas so you can just execute on it habitually because willpower is not going to last. You know, we all know that time and time. How many people, you know, what's the, I don't know the statistics offhand on New Year resolutions, but basically everyone who makes a New Year resolution breaks that New Year resolution. But for us, it's leveraging the power of habits and leveraging the power of systems. So it's building in morning systems, it's building in evening systems you know, evening systems around sleep is so crucial. I'm not sure if you've read Matt Walker's brilliant book on why we sleep. Uh, if you haven't, it's a great read for any listeners, but the power of sleep as, you know, stress reduction, living longer, regenerative post-training, it's so powerful. So it's sleep hygiene in that last hour, getting off screens, starting to dim lights, you know, ancestrally, we have hormones that are released when the sun starts going down. But now what happens, it gets dark outside, the sun starts going down and the iPad starts going on. So our body starts releasing our hormones to go asleep. And then the screen comes on, our body's like, shit, is it daytime again? And it cuts off the production of these hormones. So it's starting to just live a little bit more ancestrally in that last hour. Maybe it's turning off screens and reading a book. And instead of having the big harsh overlight on, having a lamp on or lighting some candles, and it's just starting to be mindful of the things that matter. I love the, the Pareto principle of like, 
it's the Pareto's the 80 20 principle. It's, you know, what 20% of stuff can we do that's going to give us 80% of our outcomes? We're never going to get all this stuff perfect, but let's focus on the big ticket items because there's loads of big ticket items that people right now are going, oh shit, I didn't even know that made a difference. You know, I'm flicking on my phone first thing in the morning on bed or like I'm, I'm in my bed. I set my phone as an alarm and then I'm picking it up and I'm checking my email and I'm checking my Instagram, my WhatsApp. You know, what does that do to you for the rest of the day? You get an email from a client who's going to cancel. You're already in reactive mode. Contrast that and to take control of the first hour of your day where you have routines where, you know, for me this morning before I came on here, I made my coffee. I have a little bit of a ritual around making my coffee, like any cyclist, bit of a coffee snob. So I'm making my coffee. I'm doing 10 minutes in front of my red light. I'm having my cold shower. And then I'm sitting for just five minutes with my journal and I'm writing down three things I'm grateful for this morning. And I'm starting to sketch out what does my day look like. The gratitude piece is another one of those common threads. If it's like very difficult to be grateful, but also be angry, very difficult to be grateful, but also carry, you know, the hostility or resentment into the day. They're contradictory emotions. And once you have that gratitude starting the day, but if you contrast that footing to the person who set their phone uh, alarm on their phone, picked it up, seen an email from a client that's canceling, like your whole day is ruined. You're in scatter mode, reactive mode, firefighting mode all day. But if you build that bit of positive momentum, you've taken time to ground yourself, connect yourself, you're much more capable of handling adversity. And that's what breeds the positivity into the rest of your life. And this is why I emphasize those five areas so much because you know cycling is such a small part of getting us to our cycling goals. You know, it's the essential parts, but all the other parts are essential as well. Um, I'm aware of time, Anthony, but I have one question I wanted to ask before we go, which is, should I feel happier after a ride than before it? Should I always feel happier once I've finished a ride than before I've started it? No, I I don't think so. Uh, Like, I think it's, you're going to have bad days. You know, you're going to have days where it's like should you only go training when the mood is right when everything is perfect it's like you know should you guys only write when you're struck by inspiration should you you know it's having the discipline of writing all the time and sure you're going to write some good pieces i'm sure you've written some absolutely terrible pieces and i'm sure you've written some outstanding pieces it's a consistency of showing up and writing all the time that gives you that brilliant outcome and i think it's the same with cycling it's the consistency of showing up and you're not always going to feel brilliant in the moment but they're those sessions that you didn't feel brilliant but you push through anyway and you get off the bike and you're like it just it wasn't a good day today but when it's part of a larger process, and I think this is a, it's a good question to finish on, actually, because it's if we think about that demographic that's super busy and you know, you're balancing family, work, social obligations, when you decide to go on the bike, what do you decide not to do? There's a cost, the opportunity cost, the cost of what we could have been doing if we had chosen not to go on the bike. And unless you're a full-time athlete, the cost of what you could have been doing, it's quite high. You know, I'm on the bike and I could have been writing. I could have been bettering my career. I could have written this amazing Hunter S. Thompson piece that's going to be my breakthrough piece. You know, or I could have spent time with family. I could have spent my parents are aging. I could have spent time with my parents. So for me, this is all the things I think about if I'm going to go out on a bike ride. It's the cost of what I could have been doing. So when I choose to go on that bike ride, I need to know that that session is moving me forward, that it's moving me towards something I care about, that there's a reason for that session and it's not a selfish pursuit. 
So this is how I'm able to get, you know, CEOs, Wall Street traders, some of the busiest guys in the world to box off some time for training because it's not training for its own sake. It's pulling them forward. It's a it's a business decision for them because they're going to be more productive in the rest of the day and they're going to live longer. They're going to have more productive years of work by following these sort of systems. And it's easier to push through and get those sessions done when you don't feel well and you don't feel like it when you understand why you're doing this. You're not doing this as a flex to go out and look good in your kit. You're doing this because it fits into a bigger reason. It's you know, it's part of your framework for staying healthy. It's part of your framework for being happy. It's part of your framework for living longer. It's back to the, the why we have that as the tagline for the Roadman podcast. It's health, happiness, longevity. That's really why we're, what we're chasing. And yeah, sure, in that, it's got, you're going to have to push through some dark times when you have that. Why? Why am I doing this? It's a much easier ask. Andy, thank you very much. Um, as I said, conscious of time. So I think we'll wrap it up there, let you get back to your busy schedule. Um, which you have, I mean, someone who does five podcasts a week, minimum. We we struggle sometimes with once every uh... once every fortnight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Excellent, Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us, lads. Thank you very much. The pleasure is all mine. There we go, James. Uh, Anthony Walsh, roadman cyclist, coach, life coach, podcaster, businessman, um, and very insightful. I found insightful, inspirational. A man possibly to be slightly envious of in terms of his just ability clearly to organize himself. That's the one thing I struggle with a lot is getting in a good routine, organizing that routine and sticking to that routine. R- routine for me as well, James. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm always jealous of those who, like Anthony, can, can really stick to a routine. Because you can, it's so, you, see, you can see the benefits of people that do stick to routines. And then you're like, yeah, that'd be really good. I should get up at, you know, I should get up at the same time every day, even on Saturdays and Sundays. And I should, you know, turn my phone off at half nine in the evening and not turn, look at it again till eight o'clock in the morning. But then you just don't. (laughs) It's breaking, it's breaking, yeah, it's breaking the cycle. It's breaking those bad habits. And then once you've broken them, or at least once you've kind of diverted away from them, in my experience, then you start to see the rewards of that and then those rewards become the motivator. Sorry, if, if you can hear a door slam in the background, that's Storm Eunice. Is it Storm Eunice? So, yeah, but keep, keep going. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Now you've, you've, to- you've, to- you've totally dated this podcast now, Storm Eunice. Or I don't know, maybe not. Maybe this podcast will go out in a couple of weeks and then we'll still be in the storm. So life hacks, what we're we doing life hack wise. Uh, my main. I'm definitely going to start cold showering. Cold showering. So I'm going to I'm going to be your guru now. All right, Anthony was Anthony was ours. I'm going to be your guru. I'm just going to say, Joe, yeah, cold showers. You want to start from 30 seconds. Give yourself, you know, give yourself an opportunity to kind of grow into it, not just to get put off immediately. So I've done it before. So I used to back in my days of playing rugby when I was younger. I was a big fan of the ice bath so I used to be a member of a gym that had a plunge pool like an ice plunge pool and I was a big fan of it like he said to Tony Robbins I never got to a point where I was like yeah let's get in this ice bath it was horrible every time but I did it so I know that there's somewhere in my head that will allow me to to get that 
habit to get in that cold shower it's just doing it for the first time isn't it it's just exactly there yeah it's that it's and, and it's that going through that daily process where you're kind of mastering something from the off and in theory you're always going to come off best you're always going to win because you will have the cold shower and then you will have stopped the cold shower and then you've kind of completed task one and you feel good about that but my main things i've told you this so many times you'll be bored to hear it but when i've managed to really kick alcohol on the head that has had a massive impact on sleep. And when I've really managed to get into good sleeping habits, that's had a massive impact on being able to do something like not drink. Um, and that's the kind of daft thing about all of us is we can get into good habits and then we get lazy with our habits and then suddenly the bad habits creep back in. But I honestly yeah. think, and I've done a lot of reading over, you know, for various reasons over the years being journal with sleep stuff. You mentioned the Matt Walker book there, Why We Sleep. Tell you why we sleep. We don't know. That's the answer from the Matt yeah, Walker. Still, still don't, don't know, know do we? But yeah. one of the big things that's come up recently is just shifting your bedtime back by an hour and that having a massive effect on your mood and it having a massive effect on your energy levels. An hour later? No, no, a back back an hour. Or, well, forwards, forwards, yeah, sorry, forwards an hour. Yeah, forwards an hour. I'm not very good with time. Forwards an hour. So um, not everyone is going to have be predisposed to wake up at the same time but most people they reckon could stand to be going to bed an hour earlier and you do that you introduce that over four weeks and you do it 15 minutes a week you don't want to do it overnight you don't want to just suddenly because it's just not going to work it might work for one or two days it's not sustainable because that incremental change and that apparently can have big effects um and certainly i am a massive advocate of getting up at the same time every single day irrespective of what day that is not trying to have a lion to offset poor sleep during the week but at the same time with all of these things i do really think it does come down it's such a kind of like woolly answer but it comes down to the individual and what the how the individual is so it's all very well for us to say you know you should be way really militant with your schedule but that probably suits the type of people that we are which is why we're doing this while we're chatting to someone like anthony and why people why, why we're cycling arguably Whereas that for other people, it just doesn't work like that. Having a cold shower is just going to be really horrible and it's going to stress them out. You know, you might be able to force someone to do it and eventually they might get some gains. But it is really important just to kind of acknowledge what you need. And maybe you are that person that does just want to have a lion on a Sunday because maybe it's not the best thing for you in terms of your physiology, but it's the best thing for you in terms of your mental health. And that's something that we touched upon with uh, Phil Cavill, um, which is a podcast that will go out. Um, but you don't just stop drinking, for example, in order to, I don't know, go for, you know, lose some weight and go faster in a sportive um, without the consideration that in doing so, yeah, you might lose weight and you might go faster in a sportive, but you just might not really enjoy life quite so much. And actually, that's really, really important. Laughing, enjoying life, that's also a key aspect of you know living a long and happy time there's no point in living like a monk when you're not a pro racer and it has a knock-on impact to your just your kind of general day-to-day mood you've got to be happy you've got to be content so you've got to do things in moderation so yeah maybe a cold shower is not for everyone joe so on that note i'm gonna go take a cold shower now um i'm gonna have a sauna you're gonna have a sauna oh two ends of the spectrum love it um Thanks for listening to the episode, everyone. Uh, Lindsay, thank you very much, as ever, our producer, cutting all the waffle 
from all the good stuff, uh, you'll, you won't realise how much waffle there is. Um, if you like this episode, make sure you leave us a review on Apple, on Spotify. On Spotify, you can now leave reviews. Um, if you give us five stars, we'll be really happy and we'll be able to show it to all of our friends. Um, if James Prince-Moff has him on his wall, I can see him behind him next to the map of the world. And my diploma. And his diploma. And, yeah, if you enjoyed We'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time for our next episode. But otherwise, James, see you later, mate. Toodle to you. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by GCM+. Plus. The 2022 road season is well underway and GCM Plus is the place to watch the best live bike racing all year long. Catch all of your favourite monuments, classics and grand tours and much more live and ad-free on GCM Plus, as well as on-demand highlights, replays and unrivaled analysis from ex-pros such as Magnus Backstead and Adam Blythe. As well as the live action, GCM Plus has a growing library of over 100 exclusive documentaries exploring the full breadth of the cycling community. We particularly enjoyed Andrew Feather, Natural Born Climber. All of our UK listeners can get 25% off an annual GCN Plus subscription by heading to gcn.eu slash cyclist25. That's gcn.eu slash cyclist25.